This is Stealing Home. I'm David Temple. Steven Strasberg, Dustin Ackley, Donovan Tate, Tony Sanchez, Matt Hobgood, Zach Wheeler, Mike Miner, Mike Leake, Jacob Turner, Drew Storen, Tyler Matzik, Aaron Crow, Grant Green, Matt Perk, Alex White, Bobby Borshering, A.J. Pollock, Chad James, Shelby Miller, Chad Jenkins, Giovanni Meyer, Kyle Gibson, Jared Mitchell, Randall Grychuk. Some of these names you may recognize, some you may not. They all have a few things in common. They are all baseball players, for one, but these 24 men are in an even more elite group. They were all drafted in the first round of the 2009 amateur draft, and they were all drafted before Mike Trout. Some of them have made names for themselves. Some of them have yet to crack the big leagues, but none of them are or ever will be Mike Trout. I love Steven Strasburg as much as the next guy, but I mean, come on. It's Mike Trout. Drafts are filled with sob stories, certainly. Just ask the five teams who passed on Derek Jeter, or the GMs who let Albert Pujols slip to the 402nd pick. But that's the way baseball fans think. We only see nine guys on the field at any given time. It's so easy to daydream and think, man, if we'd only drafted that guy, if we only hadn't traded him, if we only put it up more money so that he wouldn't have left. It's the same second guessing that burrows into our everyday lives. How different would we be as people if we'd only gone to a different college or been born in a neighboring state or applied for that promotion when we were too scared? How would the Red Sox look today had they held on to Babe Ruth? Would the Astros have a World Series title if they hadn't traded Joe Morgan? What if the Marlins were able to hold on to Miguel Cabrera and still have drafted Giancarlo Stanton? We can argue, we can speculate, but we'll never quite know how our teams would have fared with the ones that got away. From the Jake Beckley Memorial Studios and the HardballTimes.com, this is Stealing Home. I'm your host, David Temple. We're digging deeper into the ones that got away in this episode. First, I'll talk with best-selling author Jonah Carey, who has written a book not on one player getting away, but a whole damn team. Then, contributor Sam Dingman laments a little about a favorite player from his childhood and, well, his whole childhood in general. Then, I try to get through one take without crying with the MVP of my heart. It's all coming up on Stealing Home. Let's play ball. Certainly, players can leave town and leave us feeling empty, but we usually get over it. Hopefully, our favorite's departure will lead to a crop of new players coming up, or for money to be freed, to spend on another big name. 
players come and players go, but at least we have our team until we don't. Sports in general is full of storied franchises picking up and leaving town. The original Cleveland Browns, the original Winnipeg Jets. There's that running joke about the Lakers moving to L.A. where there are no lakes and the Jazz moving to Utah where there is no Jazz. Heck, the Oakland Athletics, already by way of Kansas City and Philadelphia, are still considering taking off for San Jose if they can't work out a stadium deal. But baseball teams rarely move around anymore. There was the big migration west, the Braves moving to Atlanta, that whole weird thing with the Seattle Pilots, but for the most part, teams don't move that often these days. Except for one. It seems crazy, but it's been 10 years since the Montreal Expos left Canada and became the Washington Nationals, a somewhat ironic move seeing as Washington had already lost two teams to Texas and Minnesota. The Expos now seem almost like an afterthought in baseball, which is incredibly sad. Yes, things didn't work out, but the Expos were a franchise filled with great players, great fans, and great stories for many years. The Expos had a different vibe to them, a different essence. And that essence has been recently chronicled masterfully by my guest Jonah Carey. He's the author of the new book, Up, Up, and Away, The Kid, the Hawk, Rock, Vladdy, Pedro, Le Grand Orange, Yuppie, The Crazy Business of Baseball, and the ill-fated but unforgettable Montreal Expos. Jonah Carey, thank you so much for joining me on Stealing Home. Thanks for having me. I want to talk to you a little later about, about the demise of the Expos, but, but first I'd like to, to talk a little about uh, their life before that. I know that you are from the Montreal area, but... Uh, besides the locality of the team, what made the Expo special to you? Um, I mean, it's my childhood. You know, it's, I, it's just, I think anything that you uh, hold near and dear in the first place is something you gravitate toward, and you, people take off cues from their families and <laughs> things like that. And that's what it was for me. It was watching, you know, the Expo's on my grandfather's couch when I was six or seven years old, and, uh, swearing at the TV and uh, <laughs> complaining about Rodney Scott. He used to call him the wood chopper, that he was a terrible hitter. And uh, those things kind of resonate. And then you get a little older, you start to take your own interest. I was reading Bill James when I was eight, uh, wow. which I suppose it could be argued that in one way I'm gloating about that, and in one way it makes me the giantest dork alive. It's probably <laughs> a little bit of both, I guess. Uh, I just always took an interest in that. And my dad tried to foster my interest. I was a big numbers kid. I, I used to walk around the calculator when I was three and uh, – just like that stuff. So when I got a little older, old enough to understand, he's like, okay, here's this book. I thought it was the best. And, um, kind of progressed from there and would go to games with both of my grandfathers. And uh, later on, when I got a little older, a uh, teenager, I'd start going with my friends. And uh, that's what it was. You know, I, I had the Montreal Canadiens were around. I mean, they were a much more successful franchise. They won Stanley Cups. Uh, they won a couple, uh, well, they won several in my lifetime. They won a couple that I remember vividly in 86 and 93. Uh, but that just wasn't it for me. It just somehow didn't register on as visceral a level because the Expos were just, uh, you know, they were family and they were friends. And, and I think all of that in combination with baseball just really being a, a reflection of numbers just really spoke to me. And and the city of Montreal, I'm, I'm going to admit I, I've never been, but uh, at the beginning of your book, you kind of um, outline just how uh, how much gall it took to, to for that city to not only put a bid in for an expansion team but to get everything all those pieces moving 
uh, in such a short amount of time. When, when they finally do, you know, get the team, you talk about how they have to, well, basically do everything. They have to, you know, they have an owner and that's about it. And they have to get managers and they have to get staff and they have to find players and they have to get scouts. Is that kind of a, a, a reflection of that of that city, at least in, in that time, a kind of uh, can-do-anything attitude? Yeah, I mean, it was uh, in large part due to the mayor, Jean Drapeau. He was a big dreamer. They you know, built a whole city in the 60s, basically. The east side of downtown, which the current east side of downtown did not exist. They built it all up. It was beautiful and majestic and these new buildings and, and grand pavilions and all that stuff. They built a new subway system that had been in the works for 50 years, but nothing had ever happened. Finally, under Drapeau, it did. Uh, they built out, uh, there were these islands in the middle of the St. Lawrence River, and they built two of them out. And uh, on those islands, they hosted Expo 67, which at the time was a huge, huge deal. Hosting these world expositions was just a, an enormous uh, privilege, and Montreal was able to land, land it. And so off of all that momentum, the mayor said, all right, next step is we're going to get a baseball team. And he, in combination with a councilman named Jerry Snyder, uh, you know, kind of got the wheels in motion and uh, started bugging some people within the higher ranks of baseball. And they enlisted Charles Bronfman uh, as one of the uh, main owners. They actually had a whole bunch of uh, kind of captains of industry lined up. A couple of them dropped out because there was a lot of uh, – it was very slapdash, you know. They were trying to make these things happen. As you said, it was a lot of gall. They didn't have the details worked out. They just said, ah, we'll get a team. We'll figure out where they're going to play. No big deal. They bring, um, you know, the National League president over to Jerry Park, which is a municipal park with uh, – basically some minor league grandstands uh, that could see a couple thousand people and uh, was, hey, you know, we're going to play over here. We're going to do this thing. And then the NL president, because the team had already been awarded to Montreal, said, all right, that's why we believe you. And so from the get-go, it was always like that. It was just, yep, we got a team. You know, we, we dreamed big and we made it happen and we'll just sort of go along from there. The problem was, of course, that later on you get to a point where it's like, all right, well, you can't do things slapdash when the industry starts growing and there's more money and all that stuff. The Expos uh, – you know, never quite had that real infrastructure that you needed uh, to run a successful franchise. And and uh, uh, I want to talk to you about um, Olympic Stadium a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. I'm from Minneapolis, and, and we had the Metrodome. And uh, I was more than happy when the Twins moved out of there. Um, you know, not that I'm – it was just – uh, I was excited to see a nicer uh, a place to see baseball. You know what I mean? And uh, – and so I, I was very much glad when the, when the Metrodome uh, kind of went away, at least as far as the, uh, the baseball side. But then they tore it down, uh, and I got to admit, like it was it was a little sad. Uh, even though it was it was a terrible place to to watch baseball, it was I guess it was kind of easy to get to, but that, <laughs> the location of it was pretty much its only uh, strong suit. I, I know that. Um, well, you, you went back to uh, to the Big O uh, early this spring uh, for the exhibition games. Um, and I know that, and you write a little bit about uh, the the kind of tribulations uh, that went along with that place about, uh, you know, some maybe some vermin problems and, and of course, the problem with the roof that never uh, really quite worked right. Uh, but when you went back, was it was it more of a, of a happy memory or was it kind of a sad, uh, you know, more of a melancholy event? Or was it maybe a little bit of both? No, it was absolutely happy. I didn't find it to be melancholy at all. I mean, I, I'd long ago come to terms with the team leaving. In fact, I came to terms with it, quite frankly, before they left. I'd moved away in 1997, not, not for any reason like that. It was because, you know, I was getting all of my life, and I was moving to the state, and I got married, and all that stuff. Um, so I'd been away from it for a while, and, uh, you know, the real painful, the, the, the biggest painful year was 2004, honestly, because in 2003, they actually contended. I mean, it was... Uh, bare bones operation they were run by MLB and their awards of the state but they won some games that's why I'm rare I mean this is a good team 
2004 was really the depressing part. And I wasn't living there then. You know? So I, I don't think I really got all that. And, and like I said, I, I knew, we knew going back years before that, that the team was going to move eventually. In the 90s, the thought was already right, happening. It's going to be D.C. or Buffalo, but it's definitely going to happen. And so when I went back, it wasn't, oh, gosh, the Expos aren't here anymore. It was, well, it was pure nostalgia. It was just celebrating all that stuff. I mean, it was a Blue Jays and Mets game, and there were a few Mets fans and a few Jays fans, but the vast majority were Expos fans wearing all kinds of jerseys from the old school ones, like the Carter and Rain stuff, all the way through to the Vlad uh, jerseys, and it was great. Loved it. Uh, I was ecstatic. You know, it was just this amazing thing, and the fact that I happened to have written a book uh, that came out three days right before these games, it was it was just a capper. You know, it was just that I, that I could be – the tiniest, tiniest, play the tiniest, tiniest role in uh, in this celebratory weekend was just, it was an amazing thing to me. It was, you know, you don't really, in our profession, you write and it's fun and, and you do what you do and you're writing about you know, whatever, you know, the Dodgers or the Mets or the Astros, that, that's all fine. But to write about your childhood team, to be uh, a chronicler of your childhood team for all this stuff to happen. Then the 94 Expos came back that weekend, had a reunion. So I got to Kent Hill bought my book. You know what I mean? It, it was just these, and had me autograph it. It was, it was this visceral, incredible thing where child Jonah is interacting with adult Jonah, who's, uh, you know, made a little bit of a career out of it. And it was just this incredible, incredible thing. I, I don't, you know, I'm, I'm sure I'll do lots of stuff in my career and it'll be fine. And I'm, I, I love what I do and all that, but, uh, I don't know if anything will top that weekend. It, it was just, this incredible. I mean, you know, I think maybe even the biggest of all of these things was, um, it was a signing on the Friday. It was at a bar. Uh, the guy who runs the bar is a buddy of mine and uh, a popular place downtown. And so we did a book signing and I signed that Alice Valentine, great expo from the late seventies and early eighties. And Jim Fanning, Jim Fanning was the original uh, general manager of the team. He managed the team in 81 when they, uh, almost made it to the World Series. Uh, he was with the organization uh, from the duration, just one of the legends of the franchise. Those two guys were straddling me and, uh, you know, sitting on either side. And uh, in the bar, sitting five feet away was my mom. You know what I mean? It's just, you can't, those kinds of things don't really happen to people very much, uh, whether you're an accountant or a paper pusher or a writer, quite frankly. And uh, and I appreciated every, every bit of it. I just felt that it was... Uh, I don't know what I did to deserve all that great stuff, but it was it was really, really fun and moving, quite frankly. It was, it was really amazing. You're listening to Stealing Home. I'm your host, David Temple, and my guest is author Jonah Carey. He's just published a new book chronicling the history of the Montreal Expos called Up, Up, and Away. I want to uh, transition now maybe a little bit to the, to the later part of the team. Um, you wrote in your book that... Uh, as a fan, it's easy to, let's say, point a finger at one person or, or one group of people as the reason for uh, a team, you know, either they're contracting or leaving town or something like that. But at least in the case of Montreal, there, uh, there were a lot more factors in play than even I had realized before I picked up your book. Um, besides, uh, I don't, I don't want you to necessarily say who's the most to blame, but, um, uh, maybe just talk a little bit about about kind of uh, the whole the whole perfect storm that kind of came together in Montreal, uh, you know, toward the end of or in the you know beginning of the two thousands. Yeah, I mean, the the biggest thing that, that that happened really, you know, we talk about the end, but what ultimately did the team in was they didn't have a champion. I mean, uh, you know, I mentioned Charles Brockman earlier; he was the heir to the Seagram's fortune. He was outrageously wealthy, 
and one of the richest men in North America, and he wanted to make a name for himself. And his, you know, his, his mom would say, "Hey, you know, to become a benefactor of the opera." Where he's like, "I don't, I don't care about that stuff." He was 36 years old. You know, he's a young guy, and he wanted to do something that he could really stamp as his own. And he said, "Okay, it's going to be the baseball team." And uh, so for 20 years, you know, he was just absolutely committed to this thing. He put money behind it. Uh, it's, you know, our, our generation, it's not easy to know because we would have been little children or not alive or whatever. But I mean, back in the day, the expos were, they could spend with anybody because it wasn't really about the market size or whatever. It wasn't so much that it, it was that uh, if you were wealthy, you know, if the owner was wealthy, that could get you far. And so the expos really were a richer franchise than the Yankees, for example, because Charles Brockman was a richer man than George Steinbrenner. And so, you know, Richie Jackson comes up as a free agent, and the Expos can viably compete with the Yankees to get a guy like that. In fact, it was the Expos, the Yankees, and Padres that were the bidders. Why was it the Padres? Because the Padres were owned by Croc, by the Croc family, owner of McDonald's. So, I mean, it was one of those things that it, things were different then. And so, Bronfman really did try very hard to get Richie Jackson. That didn't work out, but made an effort to get all these big free agents. Spent a ton of money on facilities. Expos had a beautiful spring training facility. Uh, they were committed to. They paid their coaches more than anybody else. Their roving instructors. I mean, they really cared about develop. They tried to do it with the free agent route, and sometimes it wouldn't work just because players wouldn't want to play in Montreal, even though they had the money. So when it didn't work, they said, "All right, we're going to build the best farm system, and we're going to put the most money behind it." And that's how they got Dawson and Carter and Valentine and Reigns. And so the investment in the farm system was just immense, and, and it, the, the ability to do that uh, really meant a lot. So the Expos were that kind of franchise back then. So you fast forward quite a few years, Charles Bromwich sells the team. The consortium of owners that takes over, they're, I mean, even wealthier. These are the biggest companies in, in Canada, in some cases in North America. you got Bell, which is, you know, it's like AT&T, a gigantic company, Canadian Pacific, a railroad giant, uh, one of the biggest grocery chains in all of Canada. All these giant companies take a stake in the team, but they don't really put any real money, real commitment behind it. They all say, okay, here's a check for $5 million. Leave us alone. Do not bother us. They viewed it as a charitable act. So as you go through the 90s and the Expos have to – you know, sign this player, make this deal or whatever, or even just retain their own guys, they are just completely reluctant. They don't want to lose a dime. They never want to put a penny into it. So the 94 strike happens. They dismantle the team. And, you know, from then on, they never really uh, kept a strong nucleus. They built uh, a bunch of good nuclei with uh, eventually you have Pedro and Vlad and so forth. But they, you know, guys kept leaving, and it was because of the lack of committed ownership. That finally leads to Claude Brochu getting out as the uh, principal partner. They bring in Jeffrey Loria with those uh, minority partners. And Loria starts cash calling them out. Loria realizes what's going on. He says, hey, listen, you're either in or you're out. He puts money in the middle of the table. The other guys do not. Other guys, the other giant companies do not. And as a result, he takes a 94% stake in the franchise. I don't know. Maybe you could argue that he was a jerk, but that's just normal business to, you know, you either your partners are committed to the business or not. I, I wouldn't say I'm sympathetic to Loria, but I get what happened. And then finally, you know, it wasn't going to work out under Loria. It goes to MLB, and, and that was the end of that. So, you know, that's, that's really it. I don't think that the city was or even is incapable of supporting baseball. I think baseball could absolutely work in Montreal. But you look in other cities, and you've got, you know, let's take Milwaukee as an example. That's the smallest geographic market in all baseball. But they got Mark Atanasio. Mark Atanasio is not only outrageously wealthy, he's committed to the franchise. They draw people to that stadium. They spend real money to get real players. And you know what? They're not a bad team. They, they, they do pretty well for themselves. There's no reason the Expos could not be the Brewers uh, in the 90s and the aughts or now, It's except for the fact that they didn't have a committed ownership group. And the strike, of, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's an easy thing to say, well, if, you know, if the strike didn't happen in 94, the Expos would have won it all. You know, that would have been their year. Um, I know that they had a very good record when the strike happened, and I know that they had a very good team. Uh, 
do you think that if they maybe not even win the World Series, if they make a good run at it, you know, get farther than uh, than the than the than the first round of the playoffs, like they did the only other, uh, the only time they made it uh, to the postseason. If if they go if they make a good run at a championship, do you think they have a better chance of sticking around? Does that champion then show up? Maybe not in the form of of uh, or in that exact time frame, but but a little later on, does it revitalize baseball in that city, or or was uh, or just or is the ownership group just never really gonna uh, gonna let this team pan out? Um, no, I mean, I think it's 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 reasonable to say that the likelihood would be raised. I dispute the notion that that would have been the panacea that it's automatic the Expos would have stayed forever and they would be, you know, this fantastic franchise today. I don't know that you could say that, but I think it definitely it definitely helps. And you're not saying that, by the way, to your credit, a lot of other people do. But um, you know, I, I think it, it certainly would have improved uh, the possibilities. Uh, you know, they had a stadium drive right after '94, and uh, you know, if that had been the time frame, but they're coming off a year in which they, even if they make it to the LCS and give it a run and fall short of the World Series, yeah, you know, I think they might have uh, built some goodwill. Here's the only thing that I would say about that, though, because you know, you're, we're basically concocting uh, a scenario where they do well in the playoffs, they get momentum for a stadium, they build a stadium, and then whether it's the old owners or maybe new owners. Uh, in particular, then that works out better than they're allowed to stay. The Montreal Canadiens, the crown jewel of sports in that city, maybe even to some extent in the country. I mean, just this uh, you know esteemed franchise with more championships than anybody else except the Yankees and, and all that good stuff. They could not build an arena for the longest time, nor get an owner. The team was put up for sale. Nobody in Canada would step forward and say, of course, it's the Montreal Canadiens. It's like buying... You know, the bluest of blue chip stocks, of course we're going to go for it. We'll build a new arena. That'll all happen. It took years for that to happen. And the guy that finally made it happen, an American named George Gillette, who came in. Nobody trusted the guy because he wasn't American. They didn't know what to make of him. It's a very uh, provincial kind of place uh, in Montreal and in Quebec where people are a little bit fearful of outsiders, in particular of Americans. And in the end, Gillette is the guy who has the vision and the money and the will to make it happen. You know, he gets the team back on track. He built a lovely new arena to a place in Montreal Forum, which was a, a fantastic and magical place, but it run its course. It was uh, quite old at that point. And, you know, the Habs are back to being one of the most valuable properties in the NHL and have been for the last few years. So if the Montreal Canadiens can't get any support at that time, financial, with an arena, with an owner, or whatever, even if the Expos win the World Series, even if they sweep the Yankees by a score of 25 to nothing in each of the four games, I'm not 100% sure that happens. I'm not even 50% sure that happens uh, to get the stadium and to get new owners and so forth. It was just one of those things where not only did they not have a lack of committed owners, this was just a bad time for the local economy. I mean, you know, this was the beginning of the tech boom ruling the states. If you think about the uh, early 90s on into mid, and certainly by the late 90s, everything is overheated. Montreal just didn't have that same boom at that time. The economy moved at a, at a different time uh, in Montreal and in Quebec than it did in the states, and that really hurt the expos. One last question. Um, you are a noted uh, proponent of Tim Raines uh, to yeah. be into the Hall of Fame. Um, if any, uh, for the listeners, just Google Jonah Carey, Tim Raines Hall of Fame. You'll, I mean, there's it, it's been documented. Um, when he makes it in, I think he's going to make it in. I think these people think will wise up. Uh, so when he makes it in, does that help? Kind of put a nice bow on this situation, or is or is him getting in, a t- is him getting in a Tim Raines thing, or is it an Expos thing for you, or is it kind of a, is it kind of in the middle? Oh, I don't feel any like. Um, There's no closure or anything that goes along with that. Yeah, you know, I don't, I don't feel that. I mean, you know, first of all, you get older and you have a life and so children, whatever, you know, those become your main priorities. So I don't, it's not like I sit there with a sense of longing every day, like, oh, I just need something to make me whole again. Um, it would be nice, though. I, I think we just look for opportunities to celebrate. I mean, this is what made the exhibition games in Olympic Stadium so special. It's just, 
when you're a fan of any team, if even if you're a fan of a cruddy franchise like the Cubs, there's something. There's always going to be something. You can sit on the bleachers in 85 degree weather having a beer. It's lovely. You know what I mean? And maybe they lose 14 to nothing, but you're there and it's a way to celebrate. There's, there's just, it's a void. You don't have anything when your franchise no longer exists. You can ask fans of the Seattle Supersonics or any other franchise in that situation, Hartford Whalers, and it's the same story. And so I think from that standpoint, it's just range is an opportunity for all of us to get together in upstate New York and have beers and sit in lawn chairs and get excited about a guy that we rooted for. Uh, you know, we were children, and, and I think that that really resonates. Now, he's not going to be the last uh, guy. Pedro Martinez is going to go to Hall of Fame next year. He'll go in as a Red Sox. Big effing deal. It's not like we're not going to show up. I, you know, I, I'm already talking to my Grandland uh, coworkers. There's a lot of Red Sox fans at Grandland. They're all, they plan to go to Cooperstown, and I'm going to go with them. And we'll probably sit together, and they'll wear the Red Sox caps, and I'll wear Maxwell's caps, and that's fine. You know, it's a shared legacy, the same way Andre Dawson was when he went in with the Cubs fans and the Expos fans, and the same way Carter was. Those guys went in as Expos, but don't tell me that Mets fans and Cubs fans didn't go to uh, Cooperstown. Of course he did. And Vladimir Guerrero has a pretty good chance of going to the Hall of Fame. You know what? Vladimir Guerrero is probably going to go in as an angel, although it's actually close statistically. But if he goes in as an angel, that's fine. I'm going to sit with my angel brethren, and we're going to have a great time. And there's no possessiveness. We're going to do all that stuff. So, you know, the thing I'll say about Reigns is that he is not nearly as associated with any other franchise as with the Expos because he bounced around. He played for the Yankees and the White Sox and uh, a couple other teams and, and didn't really settle in in that way. So he would be all ours in some sense. Um, but that doesn't really make a big difference to me. I mean, I'm going to be happy to see Pedro. I'm going to be happy to see Vlad. Reigns just resonates, well, for a couple of reasons. Number one, uh, I, I just think that he's gotten overlooked because of his skill set, and that's kind of a, a stats guy. It just upsets me that if you get on base, you know, he's like got on base more times in his career than Tony Gwynn. Tony Gwynn sails in with 97% of the vote, and Reigns is still, you know, he's seven years in and really hasn't gotten much of a sniff. He's barely over 50%. You can find a vacillating around that level. I'm not contending that uh, Tony Gwynn is a bad player. When he, he absolutely deserves to be in the Hall of Fame, but so does Reigns. I mean, I think that's the easiest comp, and, uh, and I struggle with that, you know, just kind of intellectually. And, of course, the other reason is because, uh, you know, I mentioned my grandfather before and all that. Reigns was the genesis of that. I mean, I was born in 74. First year I remember watching any baseball was really right at the end of the 81 season. Well, 81 was Reigns' rookie year. That was the year that Fernando Valenzuela won the Rookie of the Year award, but you know what? You give it to Tim, Tim Raines, who had, I'm going to say, I think it was 71 stolen bases, I think, in 78 games or 78 and 71. It was something insane like that. I and mean, he was just a great player and already was drawing walks and hitting doubles and just so, so good. So that's kind of my genesis as a baseball fan. Everything that happened afterwards, becoming a fan of the Expos, eventually writing about baseball or whatever, you know, in a sense, you could trace it to 1981. It's to, you know, a young kid discovering this guy who was, oh, yeah, okay, statistically, he's a great player, but viscerally, he was so exciting. You know, I mean, he was just such a dynamic guy, stealing all these bases, doing all these things. And, uh, and I think that's what resonates. It goes back to what I said before that, you know, why do you become a fan in the first place? Or why do you take this up as a career? It's the memories that you form as a child. And my earliest memories are of Tim Raines. And I hope that uh, the Hall of Fame honors him. Objectively, I think he should be in. And yeah, of course, subjectively, I think he should be in too. Well, John, I, w- I want to thank you for taking time to talk with me. It's a really wonderful book. And uh, I really appreciate, uh, appreciate you uh, talking a little uh, expos with me. Thanks a lot. Thank you, David. Jonah Carey is a writer for Grantland.com and the author of Up, Up, and Away, the chronicle of the Montreal Expos. You can follow him on Twitter at Jonah Carey.
go a wandering along the mountain track. And as I go, I love to see my knapsack on my back. Valerie, Valerie, Valera, Valerie, Valera, Valerie, Valera. The process of picking a favorite player as a child can be a bit of a grab bag. Sure, lots of kids just pick the best player on their favorite team, but there are other factors in play at times. Maybe you like the way a guy wears his hat, or that he looks so much like a normal person that it gives you hope that you may too be able to crack the bigs one day. Or maybe it's the poetry inherent in a pitching delivery. When those players leave, it can be heartbreaking and confusing for a kid. But as we look back at those early admirations of our lives, we are sometimes left wondering why we were somber about a player departing. And maybe why we were ever fans of him in the first place. Sam Dingman explains. Ben McDonald would stand, as I recall, in the exact middle of the pitching rubber, holding his battered black Rawlings glove a few inches from his chin his cheek perpetually fat with bubblegum. A long strand of errant leather dangled from the pinky finger of the glove, swaying ever so slightly as MacDonald peered in for the signs from his catcher. Once confirmed, he would rock gently back on his left heel, tucking his spindly arms carefully over his head and rotating to his right. His left leg would lift into a perfect crook, making him look rather like a human question mark, the ball held tenderly before his chest in the cradle of the black Rawlings. Then, the arched leg would seem to cascade effortlessly forward, the ball sweeping out of the cradle and up over MacDonald's right shoulder from precisely the 12 o'clock position, hurtling towards the plate as his right foot arched gracefully behind him and landed softly alongside his left, leaving MacDonald standing tall, alert, and even-keeled to await the result of his marvelous delivery. It was a mystery to me, as an 11-year-old Orioles fan, when Mike Mussina arrived to much greater acclaim. His mechanics were, by comparison, almost non-existent. A constant expression of focused serenity on his well-groomed features. A gentle rock back, a short and explosive leg kick with an unspectacular finish. The whole thing was pretty much over as soon as it started. The other key difference, of course, was what happened once the ball left each man's hand. For McDonald, the ponderous grace of his delivery was usually disrupted by the thunderclap of the batsman's forceful contact with the offering, which was usually up in the zone, having arrived at the plate with much less velocity than one would think such an intricate sequence of physical preparations would induce. He was constantly whirling around in disbelief as the ball soared into the outfield, endlessly scrambling to back up his infielders as gleeful opponents dashed around the bases ever the grudging recipient of a whack on the bottom by a manager who stood barely as high as the letters on McDonald's jersey, always trudging back to the dugout, frowning at the ground, wondering where it all went so terribly wrong. Messina, meanwhile, would quietly baffle opposing hitters with precisely rendered fastballs and tightly twirling knuckle curves. What the hell, I wondered, did knuckle curve even mean? I empathized with Ben McDonald's befuddled state. At the age of 11, I, too, aspired to pitch in the major leagues, and for a time, found myself dominating at lower levels of competition, as he once had. My tactic was simple. I would imitate, 
motion for motion, the windups of my favorite pitchers as best I could, convinced that if I delivered the ball to the plate in the exact same way they did, I was likely to have similar results. Initially, I relied on a serviceable Alan Mills impression, connecting my glove and throwing hand to my left knee with an invisible string, moving my legs with sharp angles and precise pivots. But that was only because Mills was the first set of mechanics I could reliably reproduce. Eventually, I gathered the courage to attempt a modified Maddox, but it didn't take. I had the minimalist compact motions down, but couldn't quite wrap my head around the cognitive dissonance of throwing the changeup with the same arm speed as the fastball. I dabbled in a right-handed Randy Johnson, but being proportionally as rotund as he was lanky, I couldn't generate the necessary leverage to produce similar results. Casting about wildly, I swerved from the swooping submarine of Todd Froworth to the gangly grandeur of Jack McDowell, from the coy prancing of Rick Sutcliffe to the explosive lurch of Armando Benitez. The Benitez thing actually worked reasonably well once my growth spurt arrived, and for a time I found that I could reliably drop and drive fastballs past my fellow adolescents from a mere 46 feet away. Secretly, I still craved the buttery smoothness of McDonald's movements, but I had a good thing going and was loath to threaten my hard-earned success. And so, with this bizarre mix of confidence and fear, I found myself in the summer of my 14th year, towing the rubber atop an actual mound, peering into the distance at the suddenly more hulking, imposing boys in the batter's box, which was now 60 feet 6 inches away. They waggled their shimmering TPX aluminum bats with the undefinable but undeniable swagger of the more robustly funded youth leagues in the neighboring towns, radiant with the polish of American Legion clinics and fall rec leagues, and they positively walloped my once-effective fastballs all across the backfields of Northern Virginia. I went very quickly from idolizing the artful unfurling of McDonald's limbs to empathizing with the rapid unfurling of his dreams. Once it became clear that I didn't have much to offer on the field besides a broad portfolio of impressions of pitchers from the mid-90s, I went on to find a modicum of success as the public address announcer for my high school team, much the way Ben McDonald enjoyed a mildly entertaining run as the Orioles' color commentator on the Mid-Atlantic Sports Network. Ultimately, in my case, it became clear that my true talents lay elsewhere, and today I'm an unrenowned but fairly effective administrative assistant at a large corporation. Ben McDonald has also mostly moved on from broadcasting, and while he's yet to achieve the promise that his amateur career seemed to foretell, I believe he'll one day fulfill his potential, perhaps in some other form. As an archaeologist, say, or maybe a dolphin trainer. Mike Messina, for his part, always seemed unconcerned with how he looked when he made his pitches, preferring instead to focus on pounding the zone with innovative offerings that opponents found enticing enough to swing at, and yet too deft to catch up to. It's an approach that Ben McDonald and I hope to one day understand. Sam Dingman is an actor, writer, and podcaster based in New York. He's the co-host of the tremendous Orioles-themed show Baltimoreans, 
which can be found in iTunes or your favorite podcatching software. You can follow Sam on Twitter at Sam Dingman. To end every show, I like to highlight someone who, for reasons on the field or off, deserve a little love. It's the MVP of my heart. It is a fact that every baseball player you ever admired, cheered for, or got to sign a baseball will die. It's a thing that happens, and we can be sad or angry or defeated about it, but it's the truth. No matter how superhuman a player may seem, they eventually fall to the same foe as the rest of us. Time. When someone like Ted Williams or Stan Musial passes away, the thousands of words that accompany that event have a tinge of sadness, but are more about a celebration of a life. A life in baseball. It's a reason to remember just how great a player once was. A slightly morbid excuse to talk about baseball stats under the umbrella of history. When Tony Gwynn died on June 16th, we did just that. We looked at his hit totals. We marveled at his low strikeout numbers, applauded his on-base skills. In a time scarred by steroids, Tony Gwynn was a guy we could all say was a great true hitter, a man the likes of which we wouldn't see in the game for perhaps another generation or two. And while we certainly should marvel in Gwynn's playing career, just like we do for all the other greats who leave us, it seems a little short-sighted in this case. When talking about the ones that got away, we usually lament the foolish management or personality clashes that cause players to leave. The reasons for that player leaving cause us to shake our heads how could they have let this guy go? What were they thinking? Gwyn was no longer a player, but his leaving us caused the same befuddlement. What do you mean he's gone? Why did this happen? How could this happen? It's just not fair. We say these things, not because of what he meant to a box score or a team's success, but what he meant to baseball, capital B baseball. At barely 54 years old, Tony Gwynn had so much more to teach us. As a coach, he had thousands of minds left to mold, thousands of young people that could have benefited from his expertise as a hitter, a fielder, and a unilaterally wonderful human being. As a public figure, he had millions of people left to touch, Millions of small children left to inspire, and millions of smiles left to induce. Tony Gwynn didn't just leave our world. He left a hole in the world of baseball. A lot of reporters and writers have and will file their memories on Tony Gwynn. They are all wonderful. His infectious laugh, his ever-present smile, his breezy attitude that befit a perennial benchwarmer more than a perennial all-star. Nobody has had a bad thing to say about him. But to really understand the kind of man Gwyn was, look for an article 
on Deadspin.com, written by a former San Diego bat boy. Gwyn's treatment of this young man, taking the time to talk to him, play catch with him, going to Foot Locker and buying him new shoes for no real apparent reason, gives you just a glimpse of what everyone else has said about Gwyn. This boy got a little special treatment, perhaps, given his job, but you get the feeling that Gwyn would have done this for any kid excited about baseball. He had a keen sense of what his talent and work ethic meant on the field, as well as what his stature meant off of it. When ballplayers die, we fill their obituaries with on-field accomplishments to convey just how special they were. An obituary of Tony Gwynn could not even mention baseball, and readers would still see a singularly awe-inspiring individual. Take the bat out of his hands, and he's still a hero. We are not just saddened by Gwynn's passing. We feel cheated. We may never see a hitter like him again in our lifetimes. We may never see a man like him again either. And for that, Tony Gwynn is the MVP of my heart. Shadows are falling and I'm running out of breath. Keep me in your heart for a while. If I leave you, it doesn't mean I love you any less. Keep me in your heart for a while. When you get up in the morning and you see that crazy sun, keep me in your heart for a while. There's a train leaving nightly called when all is said and done. Keep me in your heart for a while. Shine Stealing Home is written, hosted, and produced by me, David Temple, with all original music from me, and is distributed by the Hardball Times. For more on this show and for an excellent piece of baseball writing provided for free every weekday, visit thehardballtimes.com. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash stealinghomeradio, and I tweet at David G. Temple. That's all for now. I'll see you next time on Stealing Home. Sometimes when you're doing simple things around the house Maybe you'll think of me and smile You know I'm tied to you like the buttons on your blouse Keep me in your heart for a while Hold me in your thoughts Take me to your dreams Touch me as I'm falling Pleasant stream.